and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. Halloween is almost here. I can't promise this episode is going to be any spookier than normal, but we'll see what happens. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, from Atlas Obscura, they're celebrating Grave Week in Mm. honor of the upcoming Halloween holiday. And they've got a great article that remembers when Americans picnicked in cemeteries. Have y'all ever picnicked in a cemetery? No. No. I don't know that I'd be (laughs) averse to it. Like, I don't, I mean, maybe if it was like the middle of the night, but normally I'd just be like, yeah, it's a nice. There's lots of nature there usually. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't just, you know, hey, I brought an apple to take a walk. A lot of municipalities did not have proper recreational areas or even public parks. For example, in Dayton, Ohio, Victorian era women would promenade at Woodland Cemetery. Hmm. In New York. They would stroll through St. Paul's Churchyard in Lower Manhattan. And one of the reasons why eating in cemeteries became a fad, which is what some reporters called it, was because of something we're experiencing today. Epidemics were raging across the country during this time. It was pretty popular. We had a lot of yellow fever. We had a lot of cholera. So it wasn't as taboo to be in a graveyard because we were spending a lot of time there. (laughs) It ended Mm. up being a bit of a social thing. So the picnic and relaxation trend can also be understood as the beginning of the rural cemetery movement, which I had no idea was considered a movement. Yeah. And that's partly because historically American and European graveyards had long been church grounds, right? And they would have a lot of memento mori or reminders of death and reminders not to sin. And the new cemeteries were located outside of city centers and almost designed like gardens. So they were designed to be relaxing and beautiful, not just stop sinning, you're gonna die, (laughs) right? So instead of skulls and crossbones, we would have flower motifs and the public was welcomed to enjoy the grounds. But a lot of Americans believed that picnics in local cemeteries were a little gruesome. (laughs) It didn't really stop the younger adults from meeting up in graveyards, but what it did lead to was debate over proper conduct. (laughs) In some parts of the country, like Denver, the congregations of grave picnickers, as they were known, grew to such numbers that they had to bring in the police, (laughs) or at least Uh it was considered, because the crowds were huge. The cemeteries were also getting littered with garbage. And Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, that is seen as an affront to sanctity, which I, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but come on, come on, litter in the cemetery? Come on. Sure. Even one report about these messy gatherings, the author wrote, quote, Thousands strew the grounds with sardine cans, beer bottles, and lunch boxes, which is not okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems like basically what happened is the overall aesthetic changed and everyone decided, well, now it's open season. We're going to go take advantage of this park, whether or not we care that there are dead people under the ground. <laughs> well, yes and no. I think death, I, it still kind of feels, at least from this article, it was still kind of a goth period, what with all the death and everything. <laughs> and, you know, when goth goes mainstream, I think is during these periods where there's just such oppressive, you know, reminders of mortality. Mm-hmm. I may be biased being an elder goth myself, but <laughs> there's even a reproduction of an admittance pass to a cemetery from 19. 19- 26 
where they try to deal with all of the crowds and the litter. And here they say things like, you have to have a ticket to get in. So this is where we start to get into more of the modern behavioral rules that most mm -hmm. of us may be familiar with today. But, pardon the pun, the fad is not entirely dead here. Because if you've ever been to an Asian supermarket, you'll notice fake food, fake money. And mm -hmm. the idea is that you burn these paper effigies of foodstuffs or money so that your ancestors can receive them when they're in heaven. Yeah, mm. I imagine they probably don't like people starting little campfires in the cemetery <laughs> either. <laughs> Certain cemeteries, but the Buddhist cemeteries are very well equipped for this. So they'll have Oh, have they've these, got like know, a place. Oh, yeah. There are giant incense holders pretty much everywhere because incense is a traditional kind of prayer modality within them. Mm -hmm. But they'll also have really big bins for the burning of the paper food, the paper money. It's really interesting and hmm. definitely spooky. Well, then maybe I'll go check one out. <laughs> Next link. <laughs> Next link. Um, You know what the true spooky thing of Halloween season is? It's the consequences of our actions. <laughs> <laughs> So All right. okay. <laughs> this article's titled Ivory Poaching Has Led to Evolution of Tuskless Elephants. Oh, whoa. Interesting. Yeah, and it's from theguardian.com. So a previously rare genetic mutation causing tusklessness has become very common in some groups of African elephants after a period in which many were killed for their tusks, according to a study published in the journal Science. Researchers looked at why female elephants in Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique were frequently born without tusks and found that the animals were, in effect, genetically engineered by mass poaching for ivory. Dadgummit. <laughs> <laughs> but good for them for having that mutation in the first place. Like, that was a good investment. <laughs> Absolutely, although it had to come at a cost of one of its defining features just because mm -hmm. we've ascribed a bogus meaning to it. Yeah, and they also, like, use them to fight and stuff, so that seems important. Yeah. But anyways... <laughs> So elephants with tusks were highly likely to be hunted during the Mozambican Civil War from 1977 to 1992, when 90% of the elephant population was slaughtered by armed wow. forces on both sides to produce ivory that was sold to finance the conflict. Ugh. A couple of generations later, the effects of this are still visible on the group of about 700 elephants that live in the national park. Robert Pringle of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton University, which led the study, said Gorongosa National Park had always interested researchers who had suspected historical poaching was what caused this abnormality, though the exact mechanics of the issue were unknown. So that means they've somehow proved that this is what caused it? Yes, it does seem to be the case where they actually did a genetic analysis. So mm. the team suspected the phenomenon had a genetic cause, and the fact it was rarely seen in males suggested it was linked to sex. After sequencing the genomes of tusked and tuskless elephants, the researchers found a genetic difference between the two. Analysis revealed a pair of candidate genes on the X chromosome, including one with known roles in mammalian tooth development. In humans, these genes are associated with an X-linked dominant syndrome that stalls the growth of lateral incisors. <gasps> the suspected mutation on one or more genes ends up protecting female elephants from poaching, but it is fatal to male elephants, which do not develop properly in the womb. Aww. Yeah. About half of male elephant calves with a tuskless mother will have this genetic abnormality, which means elephant herds where there has been a lot of poaching can end up severely depleted of males. Yeah, well, so you heard me gasp a second ago. My son is missing his lateral incisors. 
So, oh. like, he's got the gene that would make him a tuskless elephant, except if Whoa. he were an elephant, he'd be dead because he's male. But, <laughs> right. but he's not an elephant, and who knows what this mutation might do to protect him going forward. That's true. He will never be murdered for his tusks. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. Except when you're a human, they put in fake teeth. Like, instead of having two giant gaps in his teeth, they were like, we can just put in two teeth implants when he's 18, and so that's what's going to happen. The dentist was like, this total, This happens in about 5% of humans, but it hmm. happens in a lot more in elephants now, apparently. Wow. 5%. Well, we helped, you know. Humans had a lot to uh, claim <laughs> right, credit right. for this. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we have a little bit of an update on a previous article featured here on the podcast about Pablo Ooh. Escobar's hippos. Oh. Yes. For, yeah. For those who don't remember, Pablo Escobar, the drug lord, had a huge compound down in Colombia, and he used his bajillions of dollars in drug money to build, among other things, a personal zoo. He imported all sorts of animals, including four hippos. And when DEA agents finally took him down in 1993, the Colombian government didn't really know what to do with them. Like most of the other animals, they were able to relocate safely to other zoos. But with the hippos, they just kind of decided to set them free, figuring they'd live out their natural lives and then die. <laughs> and obviously, nobody thought to ask Jeff Goldblum, who could have told them that wasn't going to work, because, of course, <laughs> what actually happened was the hippos started breeding and ultimately became a real problem for the local ecosystem. These days, the herd numbers about 80 hippos, and everyone agreed that it was a problem, but nobody knew what to do about it. So that was the original story. And now The Guardian is reporting that Colombia has instigated a new program to sterilize the hippos one by one, which <laughs> is largely being undertaken by a single veterinarian named <gasps> Gina Paula Serna. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, that's huh. a heroic task. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of hippos. <laughs> that's a lot of hippos to fix one by one. Well, and a lot of other people were like, no, we should just kill them. But people were not so into that. You know, this, okay. yeah. this no death solution has conceptually made a lot of people happy from animal rights activists to the local villagers who have recently begun charging tourists to come onto their land and see the so-called cocaine hippos. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, it is an extremely dangerous and difficult job, which yeah. Cerna described by saying, I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the big problems that Cerna has faced is that while hippos are not strictly nocturnal, they do spend most of the daylight hours submerged in the river and only come out at night to feed. So her team would wait for a hippo to come out, shoot it with a massive anesthesia dart that could pierce the hippo's two-inch thick skin. Wow. And then Cerna would do a full spaying or neutering surgery out in the open, in the dark, as fast as she could, while her teammates kept watch, making sure that no other animals or other dangers approached them. Each surgery cost about $7,000 U.S., and Cerna had only managed to castrate six hippos in this fashion before someone, fortunately, came up with a much better idea of chemical sterilization. Hmm. So now they're using a drug called Gonicon in the tranquilizer darts instead, which actually works through the immune system. It's similar to a vaccine. Huh. And so Gonicon's effects are usually temporary, but they can sometimes lead to permanent infertility. And so what they're hoping is to just keep shooting the animals on a regular <gasps> schedule until they've all stopped making babies for good. Okay, I do see a lot of potential for tourism revenue because right. if there was a way, and I'm thinking of our elephants too, like if you really need to shoot an elephant, 
do it with a trank gun, right? Mm -hmm. Like, don't kill it. And if you have to shoot a hippo repeatedly, because it's something you enjoy (laughs) doing, and I don't understand it, but I know there are people who do, at least do it in the best interest of the ecology. Yeah. And I mean, it feels like they should still be tranquilizing them first. Because like, you got to think the hippo's not going to like being hit with a gonicon dart. And then it's going to turn and charge. Like, I feel like they should really still be uh, be going on the two-step process there. But so far, they have shot 24 hippos with the gonicon. And they currently have at least 70 more doses on hand that were donated for free from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Meanwhile, the Colombian government has tried to cash in on some of that sweet, sweet tourist money as well. They have turned Pablo Escobar's former estate into the Hacienda Napolis Park, which now includes a fantastic statue out front welcoming visitors in the shape of a giant cartoon-style pink hippo wearing a crown and <laughs> wow. traditional Colombian garb. And there I'm is getting a Fantasia vibes, but yeah. with a Colombian overlay. That's right. Or like the Animaniacs. You remember they had the two hippos and one was pink and one was blue? Like, yes. it's a giant pink hippo. It's fantastic. Also, the entryway is extremely reminiscent of Jurassic Park. Like the whole thing, I just, I feel like aesthetically someone knew what they were doing when they designed well, this Well, you know, you got cocaine hippos as a feature. You're probably not going to be coming up with it from scratch, right? That's right. That's right. Very You're going to have to. Every, art is always an homage. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Good news, everyone. Popular science has alerted us that a new vaccine may finally curb the koala chlamydia epidemic. Oh, that's great. Did not know there was one of those. I didn't either. (laughs) But I got (laughs) to say, after reading this article, I am so glad this is around because it is... It sounds really funny, but it's really tragic. Okay, serious face. (laughs) All right, so right now we've got about 400 koalas that are currently undergoing a clinical trial for a chlamydia vaccine in Queensland, Australia. And they're hoping this vaccine will finally offer koala populations protection from the disease, which, believe it or not, is recognized as the most dangerous pathogen for koalas. We're right Hmm. now in phase three clinical trials. It's an experimental vaccine. It's the culmination of years of research. And this chlamydia epidemic in koalas has been ravaging populations since the 1990s. And Hmm. it's especially concentrated along the east and southeast coast. Some populations have infection rates of up to 100%. Wow. So the plan is to have koalas getting a new single-dose jab after undergoing routine hospital care and then released back into the wild. They're also going to be microchipping the vaccine recipients uh, for koalas and observe (laughs) how they fare over the year and whether their vaccinations help lessen chlamydia transmission in their areas. And chlamydia is also just one of the many things affecting koala populations. You know, they've been having so many fires, droughts, heat waves and habitat loss in Australia. Just last month, Australian Koala Foundation said the country lost 30% 30% of its remaining koalas in just three years. Oh, my wow. goodness. Wow. So they're hoping that approval for widespread use of the vaccine could turn around populations of koalas that might otherwise disappear. And, you know, even though the bacterial culprits are different between humans and koalas, they still have a relationship. So we will definitely be keeping a close watch on this. And hopefully the koalas can pull through. Go koalas! So what you're saying is that abstinence-only education didn't work for the koalas. You know, like <laughs> it's surprising. We told them over and over and over, you know, they just don't listen. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from interestingengineering.com, and it's titled, A Surprise, Venus Might Have Oceans of Water Trapped in Its Crust. Ooh, oh. crest yeah. life. Yeah, which is a little interesting because, you know, recently on this podcast, we've heard other news about Venus, which is that it does not have water. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure whether or not they're saying that there is water. Actually, it's just hidden beneath the crust, or if there's some conflicting theories, but Let's dig into it and learn a little bit more about Venus. So Venus is a violent and inhospitable planet. Its thick and toxic atmosphere is brimming with carbon dioxide. It's permanently encased in dirty yellow clouds of sulfuric acid, trapping all heat beneath where the pressures and temperatures rise to instant death levels. But the second planet from the sun might have oceans of water trapped in the layer of mantle below its crust, which could pour out as a piping hot water vapor if we could crack it open, according to a recent study shared on a preprint server. So, in the past, scientists have proposed that colossal steam and CO2 atmospheres could be outgassed by magma oceans on Earth and other terrestrial, rocky, Earth-like planets. Think of simulations of the Earth being struck by a giant asteroid and how the result is a colossal magma ocean that pours out through the ripped crust like blood from a wound. By very loose analogy, this is how Earth-like planets begin. The study authors write, The shock degassing of substantial water vapor from hydrated minerals to simulate impacts during planetary accretion motivated investigation of the blanketing effect of a steam atmosphere above the early Earth. Which basically means, hey, we think that this might be how this works, so let's go investigate it. Mm -hmm. But the creation of atmospheres in this way would be contingent upon intense exchanges with the molten interior of a rocky planet. The researchers examined the evolution of magma ocean atmosphere systems across a range of conditions and determined that complex reactions that happen when a planet's magma is exposed prevent roughly 75% of the water contained within it from escaping into the atmosphere, which can slow or prevent the formation of oceans on a planet's surface. However, if natural conditions or some other mechanism allowed for molten surfaces to persist in the open air of a rocky planet's surface, This could enable the transition of its atmosphere from a CO-rich atmosphere to one rich in water. According to the research, a large portion of the water deposited on terrestrial planets like Venus or Earth throughout their early and formative years could remain trapped inside their interiors during the magma ocean phase. This would mean the water contained within could only escape over very gradual geological timescales. Ultimately, the high solubility of H2O in magma oceans may enable its safe storage during the tumultuous phase of planet formation, the authors concluded. And while this doesn't imply that water oceans will form on Venus, it still means terrestrial planets, including Earth and other rocky planets beyond our solar system, might retain water beneath the crust trapped in the mantle below, even if the surface conditions could kill any human being in an instant. (laughs) So imagine if we went there, and, you know, we drilled down and released what would, you know, but suddenly become steam, I imagine. So steam mm-hmm. is now pouring out of this hole that we've made in the ground. And we screwed up and it turned into basically like a steam whistle, like a tea kettle. Uh-huh. And now we have this constant forever noise coming out of Venus that we can't stop. <laughs> like the I'm Golden just... Gate Bridge that yeah. howls in weather. Yeah. I'm just saying there's ways this could go wrong. Aside from the fact that we're going to a horribly deadly planet and can never survive there. But But who knows what we could discover? That's true. (laughs) 
Maybe it would remind us when it's time for tea. Oi, love, the Venus is on. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a terrible accent. Forgive me, Britons. I enjoyed it. Okay. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article comes from CBC Radio, and it's called Scientists Have Found a Way to Harden Wood to Make a Knife that Rivals Steel. Whoa. Yeah, and they say rivals, but frankly, it blows steel out of the water. <laughs> this process was pioneered by Tang Li, a materials scientist and mechanical engineer from the University of Maryland. And while he and his team are ultimately hoping this process will be used for much more than cutlery, they made the knife as a sort of demonstration to capture people's imaginations. Because if they made, you know, a wooden beam for a building, people might think, oh, that's cool, but plenty of buildings are already made of wood, so they wouldn't really get it. They mm. wouldn't understand just how much better this stuff is as a material until you see it cutting open a steak, which is, right, they have a video of it. It's pretty surprising to watch, even if you know what's coming. <laughs> but so the demonstration knife that Lee made is three times sharper than your standard steak knife and 23 times harder than normal wood. It can be sharpened just like a metal knife and even survive the dishwasher. And the process to make it is actually really simple and largely consists of just compressing the material that wood is already made of. Specifically, wood is about 40 to 50 percent cellulose, which is already known to be one of the strongest substances in the world when you consider strength relative to density. The trick is to remove as much of the non-cellulose material as you can, starting with lignin, which acts like a kind of glue in normal wood. It binds the fibers together. So they give the wood a chemical wash to partially dissolve and remove some of the lignin, at which point the wood actually becomes very soft and floppy. And they did not have a video of that, which I really wish they had. <laughs> but then they put it under high pressure and heat, which compresses the cellulose and also removes a little bit of the remaining water in the wood. And ultimately, the wood gets down to about 20% of its original size. And microscopic analysis showed that the process also evened out a lot of the natural defects in the wood, including small pockets of air between some of the fibers. And from that point, you can shape it into anything you want. One of the things they made, for example, was a batch of wooden nails that were as strong and functional as steel nails, but with the added benefit that steel nails will rust over time, but these wooden nails won't. Lee also said he envisions his material being used to replace all sorts of plastic items with sustainable, biodegradable pieces instead. And he said that since all wood is basically made of cellulose and lignin, this process could be applied to any species of wood that you wanted. Theoretically, even bamboo, which grows really, really fast, is extremely sustainable. And different hardened woods might turn out to have different properties that could be utilized in specific ways. So overall, it seems like a really cool thing that didn't even really require that much science. It was just them going, hey, we have this thing. What if we just pressed on it really hard and made it stronger? Mm -hmm. I would eat with a wooden knife. I yeah, find I it mean, hard <laughs> to believe that it won't rot, but obviously I know. it doesn't. <laughs> you mentioned dishwasher, and I was like, who's put... Oh, yeah, we do put knives in the dishwasher. Because I was thinking, <laughs> like, a knife stronger than steel. I was thinking wooden swords. Well, let's be honest. That's what all science is probably ultimately <laughs> going to be used for. So, you know... Yeah. If this guy just wants to go to Dragon Con for one year and be like, <laughs> right. hey, I can make you amazing, like, fairy woodland carved wooden swords. I mean... <laughs> oh, he can make a killing. Yeah, so I please. I would like to subscribe <laughs> to that newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Good news coming from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Hmm. 
nuclear bomb detectors have just revealed hidden blue whale populations. Like, they're huge. Where are they hiding? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you make an excellent point, and that's been part of the uh, joy of this discovery here. They are obviously the largest animals on the planet, but they are surprisingly difficult to spot. Part of that is because the commercial whaling industry in the 20th century drove them to the brink of extinction, and today they are listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. So we've kind of pushed them into hiding. They're barely surviving. But the Mm -hmm. good news is that earlier this year, a team of scientists reported finding a new population of pygmy blue whales. We say pygmy, by the way, because pygmy blue whales are small only when they're compared to other blue whales. Yeah, Um, (laughs) not like in your palm blue whales. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Yeah, big blue whales, like regular blue whales are 33 elephants. They didn't actually give me a tonnage here. Whereas the pygmies (laughs) are about 15 elements. They're about half the size, right? So delicate. I know. (laughs) It's so great. But is that tusked elephants or tuskless Mm -hmm. elephants? (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, you know, we're changing all kinds of things, including putting them in hiding. So maybe, you know, maybe pygmy blue whales are even easier to spot. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But now that the scientists are aware of this new population of blue whales, they can work to protect them from threats like vessel strikes, entanglement in fishing gear, ocean noise, and even climate change. All thanks to the network of underwater microphones that listen for sound waves indicative of underwater explosions. Tracy Rogers, a marine ecologist and senior author on the study, said, I think it's pretty cool that the same system that keeps the world safe from nuclear bombs allows us to find new whale populations. Win-win. Yeah. Sure. So this nuclear test detection system is a global network of 170 seismic stations, 80 radionuclide stations, 60 infrasound stations, and 11 hydroacoustic stations, all spread over 89 countries across the globe. Data from the network is collected at the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization's headquarters in Vienna, where they make this information available for both civic and scientific use. For example, Japan is using this data to obtain real-time information about underwater earthquakes that precede tsunamis, which allows for early warnings that save lives. The whale songs are kind of like low-frequency rhythms and structures, and the audio patterns repeated and were consistent over the years of data, which is what led Hmm. the researchers to believe that the animals were blue whales rather than, for example, humpback whales. And the reason for that? Humpback whales are like jazz singers. They change their (laughs) songs all the time. Whereas blue whales are more traditional. They sing very Uh. structured and simple songs. (laughs) And the kicker for scientists is that this system makes the information available on short notice. So the previous system had a waiting period of like a year, in which time a lot can change in that population, right? Yeah. And so the idea is to get more information so that we can create temporary protection zones where we can avoid colliding with and killing or injuring whales or producing noise that disrupts their feeding or social behavior. Yeah, I'm going to guess fewer nuclear explosions will help. Like, I can't (laughs) imagine that's useful to them, you know? Yeah, and it's so interesting kind of looking at the existence of this, like, nuclear group, which is, we'll let you know if it happens, (laughs) which, you know, almost feels like... Are we not going to know? But, you know, by that same token, if a nuke hits all of our servers here in the U.S., it might take a while for people to be like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe the whales will know before we do. <laughs> they, I'm certain they will. I'm certain they already know way more than we do in ways that we'll never know because we're humans. Anyway, next link. <laughs> next, next link. link. 
This article comes to us from newatlas.com. It's titled Lockheed Martin plans to build Star Lab commercial space station by 2027. Wow. That seems very close. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, you heard it here first. The (laughs) commercial space race to start planet corporations has begun. (laughs) So Lockheed Martin, NanoRacks, and Voyager Space have entered into a partnership to launch a permanently crewed commercial space station by 2027. Called Starlab, the semi-inflatable platform will be available to the U.S. government and private industry. The purpose of Starlab is to carry out a wide variety of activities, including general science, materials research, plant growth, astronaut training, and tourism. In addition, it will continue an American presence in space at a time when China is pursuing its own human spaceflight program. Mm-hmm. Starlab's development will be led by commercial space services provider NanoRacks, with Voyager Space handling the business side. Lockheed Martin will build and operate the station. In its current iteration, it consists of a large inflatable habitat module and a metallic docking node. It'll have a volume of 340 cubic meters and four solar arrays totaling 60 kilowatts. Hmm. Meanwhile, a regenerative environmental control and life support system will support a permanent crew of four astronauts plus visitors. And there will also be a robotic arm to handle cargo ships and outside experiments. Lisa Callahan, Vice President and General Manager of Commercial Civil Space at Lockheed Martin, says, We're excited to be part of such an innovative and capable team, one that allows each company to leverage their core strengths. Lockheed Martin's extensive experience in building complex spacecraft and systems, coupled with NanoRack's commercial business innovation and Voyager's financial expertise, allows our team to create a customer-focused space station that will fuel our future vision. (laughs) We've invested significantly in habitat technology, which enables us to propose a cost-effective, mission-driven spacecraft design for Starlab. And that's where the article ends. You know, it really is kind of like a press release Mm -hmm. for Lockheed. But, uh, you know, it we're just one first step away from the future where we, you know, we're strip mining asteroid belts and yeah. fighting for resources across the galaxies. Yep. Honestly, the thing that always gets me is that they keep coming back with these studies that were like, oh, by the way, if a human spends more than a year in space, they have this irreparable damage to their body. And yeah. It feels like we're going to get a lot of automated stuff up there. But the idea of. <laughs> colonizing still just feels so, so far out to me. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people are going to hop up to the space station for a a vacation or maybe they'll have rotating crews or something. But I don't know. I feel like our weak little human bodies are going to get us in the end. Yeah, I feel like while reading this entire thing, I was thinking about that as well. The fact that, you know, we're kind of moving towards the expanse territory where we have a subspecies of Mm -hmm, humans mm -hmm. that have only been in space and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. But um, frankly, I'm glad that other people are going to be testing this for us first. (laughs) That's the main thing. Right, right. You, You haven't been volunteered yet. Freaking space draft. <laughs> we're we're too old to be useful for them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Good. All we're good for is podcasting these days. Don't draft us. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I'm gonna make good on my promise. We have a little bit of a spooky article here to wrap up. It is from Atlas Obscura. Europeans once drank distilled human skulls as medicine. Oh. That is super metal. Yeah, and it's basically, you know, a history of the fact that this was a really common practice. It wasn't the only substance. There were obviously lots of other, you know, Eye of Newt and lots of other (laughs) questionable things that people were using. 
But this one focuses on the skulls. Okay. And specifically, they kind of focus really hard on the most famous example. Lord Byron? Uh, no, it's King Charles II. Uh, did Lord oh. Byron take a lot of skulls? I feel like Lord Byron used to have a skull that he would drink out of out of parties, but it just sounds like he was ripping oh. off King Charles then. Well, but he was drinking out of the skull. He wasn't like powdering the skull and taking it. Like these, these are all like they oh. ate the skulls. Yeah. So the most famous example was, as I said, King Charles II. He was on his deathbed. He'd had a stroke. You know, doctors are sort of like, well, we'll try whatever we can to save him. And years before, Charles II had actually paid Oliver Cromwell's own doctor, Jonathan Goddard, a handsome sum for the secret formula to Goddard's drops. And the king basically said, I insist that you guys make these drops for me and give them to me every day. And one of the ingredients was a powder consisting of no less than five pounds of crushed human skulls. <laughs> and not just any wow. skulls would do, according to Goddard. Ideally, quote, the skull would be from someone who died a violent death at a young, healthy age. <laughs> oh, no. So like the Aztec sacrificing virgins. That is right. Kind right. of they their idea. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Young and healthy, basically. Oh. And they keep specifying violent death. But I feel like it's not like they thought the violence imbued them with something. It was just that was the only way a young person died. Either they were sick or it was <laughs> violence. And so they're like, no sickness. We don't want any of those sick people. Okay. Only All right. brutal warrior bones. But... <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but so by the end of his life, doctors were pouring about 40 drops a day of this elixir down his throat. Oh uh, it did not save him. He died. <laughs> and yet... Because the king had been using it, it sort of became this known thing. Like, it, it really brought it out into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. In 1686, an Englishwoman named Anne Dormer wrote to her sister about the positive impact a little bit of skull juice had on her mental oh, health. My she said, I take the king's drops and drink chocolate, and when my soul is sad to death, I run and play with the children. So... <laughs> You know, I mean, a little bit of skull, a little bit of outdoor sunshine. Both are helpful. <laughs> and by 1651, English physician John French wrote up his own recipe for essence of man's brains, which he touted <laughs> as a cure for epilepsy. Quote, take the brains of a young man that has died a violent death together with the membranes, arteries and veins and bruise these in a stone mortar until they become a kind of pap. Then... Put as much of the spirit of wine as will cover it, then digest it half a year in horse dung. So, you know, happy Halloween is what we're saying. Like, <laughs> I'm a little disappointed you did not read that in a witch voice. I'm because sorry. That was like so double, double toil and trouble in terms of the material. Yep. And, you know, as with a lot of old fashioned remedies, there were often other intoxicants like opiates or alcohol. And the theory is that to the degree that these things did work, it was because of the other ingredients. One of the very popular types of skull collection specified that these skulls had to have a particular moss growing on them. And, Ooh. you know, who knows what sort of biological properties that moss may have had, where they were like, no, 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 it's the skull. And the moss, like, indicates something special about the skull, but really it's the moss. Like, you're taking mm -hmm. this plant-based medicine that may help a little bit, didn't help a lot because everybody was still dying. <laughs> but the moss-covered skulls in particular were very frequently found in Ireland because they had had a lot of brutal wars over there, largely the English killing the Irish, it should be noted. <laughs> and they didn't bother burying any of the bodies. So there were literally these fields in Ireland that were just covered in skeletons. 
And so <laughs> doctors would just go out there and be like, oh, there's a good moss-covered one. Let's take that one and make some wow. drops out of it. Ooh. They also note that Germany had a particularly big hunger for corpse medications. <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't justify any of it. They just sort of <laughs> talk about all the different ways that different countries and different people thought it was a good idea to pulverize some skulls and take them. <laughs> but medical cannibalism in England did trail off as you entered the 19th century. They said, you really start to see the physician's understanding of anatomy and physiology come into more modern clarity. So, <laughs> good. Thanks for that, I guess. I mean, you know, I, uh, so, you know, science is good. Science progresses over time. <laughs> and right. maybe maybe we did learn something about that moss. And the moss right. ultimately became helpful, you know? You know, and and use this as inspiration for your own Halloween party spread. Um, you don't yes. have to use a real human brain to make pap in yeah. a mortar. Uh, come up with some <laughs> other ingredients you may actually want to digest. Or just peel some grapes and call it witch's eyeballs. There you, you go. Like, <laughs> you know, go with the classic. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include shape-shifting materials with infinite possibilities, New Brunswick's mystery disease, and scientists say they've created a strange new state of matter. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.